And so I would like to begin with a word of prayer, uh, and then we'll kind of go into the introduction for this evening's message, which is entitled, Are We in This Thing Alone? So let's pray. Oh, sweet Jesus, thank you for loving us so much, for being so faithful to us. And uh, Lord, we ask, as Chingo is saying, that you would fill our cups tonight, uh, that you would speak to us, that you would bless us, and that we would hear your plan for our lives more clearly than we ever have. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm. Sorry about that, fellas. Now we're on. So in our last meeting together, uh, many of you made a decision to give your lives to Jesus or to recommit your lives to Jesus. And making that decision is literally the best decision you have ever made in your life. But after making that decision, there can be this kind of anxiety and a bit of a weight because you recognize that it's expected of me to live a different life now than before I made that decision. Can anyone kind of testify to that? Anyone feeling that pressure in the last couple days? Well, I want to speak into that space tonight. There's a specific reason we're addressing this topic is to explain what happens after I say yes to Jesus and what is God going to do for me? Am I in this thing alone? Like, how do I become who God wants me to be? So we're going to address that tonight. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, God literally has made provision for every single Christian to succeed in their experience which is such good news for us. So we're going to explain the ministry of the Holy Spirit and what His role is in our lives as believers. So there are three primary roles of the Holy Spirit laid out in Scripture. Um, there are other aspects that are communicated, but we're going to focus on three primary roles of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. To convict, to confirm, and to conform. We'll break down each one of those as we go. Okay? But this is what the Holy Spirit has been doing or is doing in our lives right now and is doing for God's people throughout salvation history. The first is to convict. So in John chapter 16, yeah, John chapter 16, it says this. This is Jesus speaking. It'd be in red, light, red letters in your Bible, I'm sure. John chapter 16, beginning of verse 6, it says, But because I have said these things to you, Jesus has told the disciples he's leaving. Uh, and he had the audacity to say, that's a good thing. And they said, uh, no, try again. <laughs> we don't want you to leave. We need you here. But he says, because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, capital H, will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment of sin because of unbelief or because they do not believe in me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and you see me no more, and of judgment because the ruler of this world is now judged. So Jesus is saying, if I don't leave, the Comforter cannot come. What the disciples didn't understand was Jesus had physical limitations, right? We talked about this two nights ago or two messages ago. Uh, we kind of talked about this, uh, the problem of evil, that Jesus, when he became a man, there are certain aspects of his godness he had to lay aside. He couldn't be everywhere all the time because he was in human flesh. And so Jesus is saying, when I leave, you'll actually gain a benefit because the Holy Spirit can do for you what I cannot. 
So whenever Thomas goes to India and the eventual apostle Paul goes to Rome or when Peter ends up being in prison somewhere else, the Spirit can actually minister to them and help them in every location at the same time whenever Jesus could not. That's what he's alluding to, that it's to your advantage that I go away. So according to verse 8 then, who is the object of the Spirit's work? On verse 8 here up on the board, who is the object of the Spirit's work? The world. So he says that the Holy Spirit's going to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, which implies that the Holy Spirit is not just reserved for religious people. He's actually doing a work of convicting people who are outside of a relationship with Jesus that they need Jesus, that they have not believed in Him, but He would love for them to. As we talked about last meeting together, first of all, because He believes in them, and second of all, because of what He can do for them when they accept Him as His Lord and Savior. Does that make sense? So the Spirit of God is actively pursuing people who do not know Him. And some who are in this room this evening are fruit of that very thing. Some of us had young people showing up to our doors or friends or neighbors or church members showing up to our door, giving us an invitation, right, to hear the teachings of Jesus that are changing your life. That's evidence of the Spirit of God doing something for you, maybe before you even knew Him or were committed to Him. Some of us made recommitments or commitments that we haven't been walking in or never knew to walk in for years. And yet you are freshly in a brand new experience of the gospel transaction, not just of Jesus saving your life and your soul, but also doing a work of drawing you to himself and growing you and teaching you. And we're going to learn about that more this evening. So he's convicting the world of their unbelief and that they need to believe in Jesus. And some of us have responded to that even in recent days. That's such a blessing, such a precious gift. But now, according to verse, so that's verse 8, he's going to convict the world of sin and righteousness of judgment. Why does he convict them of sin according to verse 9? Why does he convict them of sin? Because they don't believe in Jesus, right? So that's the Holy Spirit pursuing and convicting people. But then the second reason that's given, according to verse 10, right? Well, let me say this. This is really good news because if the Spirit of God is convicting me that I have not believed in Jesus, it's pointing me to the very person who already believes in me and who's done whatever it takes to save me. That's the first purpose of the Holy Spirit to show us that we need to believe in Jesus. We've got that part. The very one who died to forgive me of all my wrongdoing. So that means then that when I'm convicted of sin, I shouldn't run away from conviction. I should run to Jesus who's died for that sin. Amen? Does that make sense? But when we get convicted, sometimes we get scared and think, oh man, I need to run away. I need to tune that out. I need to go somewhere else. And the the, the point of conviction is not to discourage you or condemn you. It's to point you to Jesus who's on your side and who's willing to help. Now, according to verse 10, why does he convict the world of righteousness? Why in verse 10 does he convict the world of righteousness? Yeah, he's leaving. Right? Jesus, that perfect standard of righteousness in human flesh, is leading. And the Spirit of God will fill that role in His absence. And then He convicts of judgment, according to verse 11. Why? Why is He convicting the world of judgment? Because the ruler of this world is judged. Anyone have a guess on who the ruler of this world is that He's referring to? Satan. Satan. Right in John 12, 31 and Luke 4, 6, he alludes to this very idea. He's, this, he's the, the ruler of this world. And so the point is, if God didn't let Satan off the hook whenever he sinned, 
What makes us think he's going to let us off the hook if we're his friend and followers, right? right? He's letting us know that we need to believe in Jesus, who's died for the sins of the world. We also need to trust in his righteousness, not in our own, and that there's a judgment coming where all of these things matter. So the Holy Spirit, out of God's goodwill towards humanity, broken, fallen, and disobedient humanity, he's giving an appeal, hey, you are not in a place that's going to serve you, right? That's really going to benefit you right now. I encourage you, I implore you, believe in my son. Trust in his righteousness, and he can prepare you for the judgment that's to come. This is what God is doing for people who are outside of Jesus. He's pursuing them. He's not passive. And if you do all these things, and maybe I'll consider accepting you. He is tenaciously and, and anxiously searching for the lost. He's leaving the 99 and searching for those who don't know him, letting them know there's a solution for your problems in Jesus. That's the first role of the Holy Spirit. But what does he do once we become a believer? That's the second phase, confirm. In Ephesians chapter 1, okay, and this is on the board, but you can turn there if you'd like to. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning of verse 13, it says this, In him, speaking of Jesus, you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. We talked about that two nights ago. In whom also, in Jesus also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So the Holy Spirit is serving a function in verse 14. What is that function? He's a guarantee. Another word that could be used here is a deposit or an earnest. Literally, the Holy Spirit is serving that function. How many people in this room have ever bought like a large ticket item, like a vehicle, or maybe an all-terrain vehicle, or a recreational vehicle, or a house? And when you do that, you have to make some form of down payment, right? They're not just going to say, hey, oh yeah, I'll give you a Tesla. Take this thing and walk out. We're good to go. No, they want to know that you're good for this, right? You're going to put something forward that declares, I'm good for this. And there's a contract at that stage where there's an agreement between you and the seller that on this date, I'm going to seal the deal. This is literally one of the functions the Holy Spirit is serving for you and for me. That when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit is testifying in heaven that Jesus is is standing on behalf of this individual and he's good for it. That if this person is believing in me, they are testifying, the Spirit is testifying in heaven, this is one of our people. I know it doesn't quite look like it right now, but Jesus is doing a work in their life and I'll vouch for this process right now. Now, this is not one of those sign the papers and it's good for the rest of your life. Like, this is a decision we need to walk in. If they're going to give that much trust in us, right, we do need to walk in that decision and not just, you know, say one thing once in our life and then live a completely different life. That's not how this works, right? You need to stay walking in this decision to opt into that and receive this benefit. And so... Uh, This is the promise that God has made so that we become a believer in Jesus. That spirit that was outside of us, convicting us, now comes inside of us and seals us and acts as our guarantee that when Jesus comes to seal the deal, we're going to make it. When we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit confirms that in heaven on our behalf. And that's all with the the caveat that we keep walking in that decision. If you walk away from that decision, this process starts all over again. Okay? So that's the second thing the Holy Spirit does. He confirms that heaven is our home and that the second coming, when God closes the deal, we're going to make it. 
So from the time that we're purchased at our conversion until the time that God redeems at the second coming, in that intervening time, the Holy Spirit functions as the guarantee that we're going to make it, again, with that caveat, if we keep walking in that decision. Right? If we walk away from that decision, come back to Jesus, the process starts all over again. Okay? Now, in Romans chapter 8, we also see an allusion to the same idea of the confirming ministry of the Holy Spirit. Romans chapter 8, beginning of verse 14, it says this, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God, children of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, that's Daddy, okay, the endearing term there. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are, current tense, children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we also may be glorified together. This is fantastic news, that when we believe in Jesus, the Spirit confirms that you're going to heaven, and He confirms that you are a child of God, current tense, child of God. Amen? When you accept Jesus, he doesn't put you on probation and say, well, if you put out, maybe we'll let you into the big boy club. As soon as you say yes to Jesus, you are welcomed into the family. Amen? You are welcome. But here's the thing about adoption, that when you're adopted into a family, how much do you really know about that family at that stage? You know nothing. You don't know what's expected. You just know that you are accepted. Right? All you know is that you are loved, that you are valued, that you are welcome here. And that's enough. Amen? Amen. That's enough to begin with. I don't know what this is all going to look like. I'm but a babe. I'm but a child. I'm new to this family. But what I do know is I didn't have a home. I was an orphan. I had no one to care for me. But now there is someone who is intimately concerned with my well-being and who is committed to my well-being and my growth and development. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing, giving us that acceptance and testifying on our behalf in heaven. This is a child of God. They don't know how to live like a child of God. We'll get to that. But right now we are testifying that this is a child of God. And the beautiful news is, The third ministry of the Holy Spirit is to teach us how to live like a child of God. So he comes pursuing us, even though we've been outside of Christ. Remember, as we we talked about with my story, I wasn't looking for God. But thankfully, God in his great mercy and love came looking for me. That was the the ministry of the Holy Spirit convicting me that that I hadn't believed in Jesus. Right? That I need a source of righteousness to stand in the coming judgment, and that righteousness is only found in Jesus. Not in my deeds, not in my works, not in my merits. It's only in Jesus, in His perfect sinless life. I'm covered with those merits when I say yes to Jesus, and the Holy Spirit is testifying in heaven. This person is heaven-bound. This is a child of God, and they are welcome in the heavenly home. And then he uses this H word here that we don't use a lot nowadays. But we are counted as heirs and joint heirs with Christ. That means that everything that Jesus deserves, we also are entitled to receive. Amen? That is fantastic news. 
Very good news. So the third ministry again of the Holy Spirit, He comes looking for us when we aren't believing in Jesus. He seals us and vouches for us in heaven and claims us as God's precious child. And the third ministry is He teaches us how to live like a child of God. And we see this also in Romans chapter 8, but go a little bit earlier in the chapter. Romans chapter 8 beginning in verse 1. It says, There is therefore how much condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus? None. Let's say amen to that. (laughs) There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Death is so pervasive... It's literally like the law of sin and death. They are so overwhelmingly powerful that he equates them to a law. And every single one of us in our fleshly state, right, in our default fleshly state, are dead set on living according to the flesh. On, on, on just loving and immersing ourselves in sin, which is going to lead to eventual death. And it's going to require a new birth, Right? We'll talk about this later, but Jesus talked about this with Nicodemus, the Pharisee, in John chapter 3. He said, you need to be born again. And that's what people did two nights ago. That's what many of you did. We chose to give our lives to Jesus. And as we give our lives to Jesus, we're forsaking the old life and we're claiming a new life. And it's such a radical transformation of what happens that it could only be equated to a new birth. It's the best language that God could use to communicate this, that it literally is as if this person was born as a different person than who they were before. And that's what the gospel can do. And maybe you've met people in your life who you saw them at one stage, and then you saw them many years later, and you think, what on earth happened to that guy? What on earth happened to that lady? Because when I saw them, they were a mess, right? If you told people who went to my high school what I'm doing right now with my life, very few would believe you. Because that's what the gospel does. It transforms the life that you were on this trajectory in the flesh. But when you encounter Jesus, you're now on this trajectory living by the Spirit of God and not by the flesh. And when that's the case, we're free from fearing condemnation and the judgment because we're found in Christ. And Christ isn't going to be condemned in the judgment. Does that make sense? This is the precious transaction that happens. So it says in verse 3, For what the law could not do, save us, and that it was weak through the flesh, because our flesh can't keep the law, God did. Amen? God did for us. How did He do that? By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, in flesh like yours and mine. And on account of sin, Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh. And here's why in verse 4, So that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded leads to life and peace. And he continues, because the carnal mind is enmity against God. Our fleshly mind has hatred towards God. And maybe some of us can testify to that. Like where I was in my experience before I met Jesus was I was angry at God, wanted nothing to do with God because I thought God wanted nothing to do with me. But when we encounter the gospel, we go from being dead set in the flesh to thinking and living according to the ways of the Spirit of God. So we're, we're against God in our fleshly state and we're not subject to the law of God, nor indeed could we be. So then those who are in the flesh can't please God, nor do they desire to, right? And 
So this is the beautiful, beautiful story in the transaction of what the Spirit of God can do in people's lives. Again, there's these two dead set directions for our mind. Every human being is autopilot stuck in the flesh until they believe the gospel and receive the Spirit. But when you believe the gospel and receive the Spirit, God literally changes your mind from being set on the flesh to the Spirit. You think differently, you act differently, your priorities change, you talk differently, and you realize like, whoa, you know, the last time I was in this situation, I usually respond like this, but I felt like something was tugging at my heart in that moment of conflict that, no, I'm not going to do that. Right? God is doing a work on the inside of us that we don't even fully recognize where he's changing the foundation of our experience. And we recognize, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to live like that anymore. I don't think I want to respond like that anymore. I want things to change. And this is where God does this powerful, transforming work. And I'm so thankful that the Spirit of God does this. So if your mind is set in the flesh, you're an enemy of God. You're at war with God because you can't obey his law or you choose not to by living your own way. But if your mind is set on the Spirit, you have life and peace because the law is being fulfilled in your life. You're no longer living under this experience of condemnation, right? You recognize it. No, the Spirit of God is working in my life, and I can have peace. Hebrews chapter 10 also alludes to what God does when He transforms the life, that conforming ministry. Hebrews 10 and verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us, for after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, I will write them. So who's the one doing the work here? God is, right? I will write the Holy Spirit. God's using the Holy Spirit to do so. So he's the one writing his law in their hearts and in their minds. Then he adds their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. Who's grateful for that one? And we believe in Jesus and confess our sins. He remembers those sins no more. He cast them as far as the east is from the west, we're told. Now, he's quoting from Jeremiah 31, and we'll cover more of this tomorrow night. But God is promising to enter into a new covenant relationship with his people. What does he say? He'll remember their sins no more and write his law in their hearts and in their minds. Another way of saying this is he's teaching us how to live like a child of God. We didn't know how to before. All we knew is that we were adopted into a new home, but we don't know how to live that new life. And the good news is you don't have to figure that out. The weight isn't all on you guys. Just because you said yes to Jesus, that doesn't mean that you get temporary relief and then a life full of religious bondage instead of sinful bondage. That's not what this is about. And we're no longer subject to bondage, but we're adopted, we're told, right? So he doesn't want you to live in this experience of, okay, I was a slave to my impulses before, but now I'm a slave to all these expectations that I can never achieve. God would never do such a thing. God is reasonable. So when God says, give your life to me, he's even promising to not just teach you how to live like a child of God, but to empower you to live like a child of God. Amen? You're not alone, beloved. When you say yes to Jesus, you don't have to walk this road alone. He'll give you strength to handle those difficult situations with tact and perfect wisdom. He'll give you strength to be a person of integrity in the workplace when last week you weren't. He'll give you the ability to be a better parent than you were a week ago. He'll give you the ability to be a better spouse than you were a week ago and a better son and daughter. That's what Jesus does. Now, it's a process. Right, this process of growth and transformation is the work of a lifetime, but it is a work that ends in success, and God's not going to leave you if you don't leave Him. Amen? 
And if you do leave him, he will chase you down and remind you, you're still my child. I still love you and I miss you and I wish you'd come back. Because that's the type of God that we serve, beloved. That is a God worth serving. Not someone who says, oh, you're leaving? Well, I'm done with you. Good luck with your life. You had your chance. That's not how God operates. He will not give you rest until you breathe your last breath. And even then, he will miss you for eternity. That's the God of the Bible, beloved. He wants you in heaven. And we even see this because he's convicting you before you even know him that you need him. And then when you say yes to him, he says, absolutely, heaven, check it out. That's my daughter. That's my son. I'm proud of them. I love them. Welcome them to the family. And then he tells them, hey, watch what I can do in their life when they surrender it to me. And he transforms us and makes us into a child of God and teaches us how to live like a child of God. So he convicts us of our sin. And then he confirms that when we believe that we're a child of God going to heaven, then he begins to teach us how to live like a child of God by God writing his law on our heart and on our mind by transforming us. And this is what happens when we let the Spirit of God do what it does best in our lives. Galatians chapter 5, well, we'll start with what happens when we don't let that happen. Then we'll cover what happens when we do. Okay, This is Galatians 5 verse 19. It says, now the works of the flesh are evident. This is what it looks like to live in the flesh. And this may be your life story. If you had a biography, it may look like these verses before you gave your life to Jesus. That's what my life looked like. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These types of lifestyles are out of harmony in the way in which the Spirit of God operates. But the good news is, when we're in that condition, God is not disinterested in us. When it says that they will not inherit the kingdom of God, it's because they made a choice to not receive the invitation to the kingdom of God. Are you understanding the difference? It's not that God has a posture of being against you. It's that he's honoring your posture of being against him. He's honoring your choice. You don't want heaven? I'm going to keep reminding you that there's place for you, but I'm giving you freedom to make that choice. Because God only works in the premises of love, and love requires freedom, and there's a risk in that. That I can show love to you, and you can spurn that love and do you. That's the parameters God has to work through for love to be possible. So this is what your life is going to look like by spurning the love of God. It's going to look like this, carnal and fleshly. But God is not against you. Why would he send Jesus if he was against you? He's clearly for you. He's trying to help you understand that this is not a life that's going to lead to fulfillment and happiness. It's a life that ends in condemnation, and I don't want that for you. So I would encourage you to receive the Spirit who can make this next couple verses, a reality in your life. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Amen? Amen. There's no law against this type of life, beloved. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And if we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. That's the invitation that's given to us. You need love in your life. You need peace in your life. You need joy. You need to learn how to be gentle, how to have self-control. Literally, God is willing to give that to you. But that happens by responding to the gospel and receiving the Spirit of God. That's how you find it. 
If you're looking for love and joy and peace in any other direction than accepting the gospel, you're not going to find it. You're not going to find it. And many of us can testify to that. I was looking for love and joy and acceptance in illicit relationships. I was looking for love and peace in climbing the corporate ladder. I was looking for acceptance and peace in the bars. I was looking for it in places of of revelry. And I didn't find what I was looking for. All I found was more misery, more emptiness, and this feeling of futility. But when you come into the presence of Jesus who, like with the woman of the well, can tell you everything you've ever done and still love you, that's where true peace is found. That's where true love is found. That's where true joy is found. You're not going to find it out there, but you can find it with Him. Amen? So which life would you prefer? This one or this one? What do you think? The first one or the second one? You know, I've been given this Bible study for 10 years and not one person, done it hundreds of times, not one person has said the first one. You'll never believe it. So you want that life? This is the way you get that life, by getting the Spirit. And the way you get the Spirit is by believing in Jesus when you're convicted. Then you become God's child, and then He teaches you how to live like His child. That's how it works, beloved. And that is a well that never runs dry. He is more than willing to bless and provide for His people. So when you feel convicted that you're living the life you should not have lived, believe in Jesus, and you'll receive the Spirit of God. And when you receive the Spirit, He says, Heaven is now your home. You are my child. And now let me teach you how to live like my child. Let me fill your life with my law, which leads to love, joy, gentleness, and goodness. That's how this process works, beloved. So listen to this. This is in John chapter 14, beginning of verse 15. It says, if you love me, in the original language actually says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Okay? Not if you love me, you'll do it. Right? That's manipulation. God doesn't work that way. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And here's how. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. And who is that helper? The Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him. Why? For He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. Amen? Guys, you are not walking this Christian journey alone. It may be that there is no one on earth right now who sympathizes and endorses the decision that you made recently, two nights ago. Unfortunately, that's very possible that some of you feel the Spirit of God doing a powerful work in your life. You're hearing things you've never heard before. You are finding answers and clarity that you didn't even know that you were looking for, but your soul said, yes, I know that's true. And it may be that you're walking a journey right now that feels alone. It feels very lonely. No one's supporting you. No one understands what you're going through. And you feel like I'm on the journey to the most amazing place, but I feel like I can't take anybody with me. I can't take my husband. I can't take my wife. I can't take my kids. I wish they could see what I'm seeing right now. You're not alone. Jesus says, I'm not going to leave you alone. You are not orphans. You're welcome with me. You may not be welcome with them. They may not understand, but you're welcome with me. You can stay at my house anytime you want. Amen? So this is a promise that Jesus has made, that when you love Him, He will empower you to keep His commandments through the outpouring of the Spirit of God. People who love me keep the commandments because I give them the Spirit to help them do it. The word helper here, by the way, is the word parakletos. 
And it's two Greek words put together. Para, which means side by side, and kletos is one who comes. He's promising one who will come alongside us and help us in the journey of life. That's the promise that God has given us. The Spirit will be walking alongside you, helping you in your journey. I will ask the Father and He will send someone to come beside you. He will be with you. So if you love me, you will be doing my commandments because you won't be doing it on your own. There will be someone who comes alongside you who will walk with you and help you to accomplish this. That's the gospel. That's righteousness by faith, believing in God's power to change me and grow me and save me based upon His merits, His righteousness, His accomplishments, not my own. I can't work my way to heaven. All I can do is accept Jesus' awesome life. And Jesus credits that to my account. That's how the gospel works, beloved. It's not what you do. It's what you believe and what you choose to submit to. He takes care of the rest. So listen to this. This is in Galatians. Because some of us think that we've got to get rid of things in our lives to get the Spirit. If I can just kick smoking, if I can just kick drinking, if I can just kick this or kick that, then I can get the Spirit. But these verses imply something different. Listen to this. It says in Galatians 3.26, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 4.6, Because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. In Galatians 5.22, the fruit of that Spirit in your life is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. So here's how it works. You have faith in Jesus. You become a child. When you become a child of God, then He sends the Holy Spirit into your life. And the result of the Holy Spirit in your life is the fruit of the Spirit. One of those fruits is self-control. So some of us think, man, like I just I gotta stop doing this or stop doing that so that I can receive the Spirit. But there's no way you could stop doing that until you already receive the Spirit. Are you understanding? We have it flipped in our own minds. If I can just get all these things out of my life, then God will find me acceptable, then I can get the Holy Spirit, and then I'll be okay. And he's saying, No, 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 no. You don't have power to get this stuff out of your life. You are assuming you have power that you do not have. What you need to do is believe in Jesus. What you need to do is receive the gospel. And when you believe the gospel, then he sends a spirit into your life. And it's the spirit that gets the other stuff out of your life. Amen? You got to pour in the good water to displace the bad water. Not get rid of the bad water and hope good water will come. This is how this process is meant to work, according to Galatians. Okay? So there are many people who have a very discouraging Christian experience. And they're asking themselves, if I'm really a Christian... Right? If I'm really a Christian, why do I keep struggling with this? But the reality is this, beloved. What you need to do is believe the gospel. Believe that God loves you. Believe that when you receive the gospel, it unleashes the power of God in your life, and He'll take care of whatever you're dealing with today. That's how this process works. Okay? This is what unleashes the Spirit of God in your life. And Jesus said this to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Nicodemus is struggling because Jesus is saying He's equating the Spirit of God to the wind. Right? It moves in ways that are beyond our comprehension. It's like the wind. We don't know where it came from or where it's going, but we see evidence that it's doing something. This is the way the Spirit of God works in your life and in mine. Right? You can tell by the leaves and the trees that there's wind blowing, but you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. It's the same way with the Spirit of God. He's doing a work in your life that you know nothing about. But He does give it evidence that He's working. 
right? He's doing stuff. He's laying a new foundation in your experience, clearing the faulty foundation, laying a new foundation, strengthening and doing so forth. But just because you've accepted Jesus and you don't see everything leaving your life all at once does not mean that the Spirit of God is not active in your life. It does not mean that you're not a saved Christian, and it does not mean that God is neglecting you or not hearing your prayers to get that junk out of your life. Are you understanding the difference? God gives us evidence that He's working, that He's present, that He's active, but you may not see all the details, and that's okay. Because how fast you grow in your Christian experience is none of your business. You don't need to worry about how fast you're growing. What you need to make sure you're doing is putting yourself in an environment where you can grow. You need to keep trusting in Jesus, keep looking at Jesus, keep resting in Jesus, and when you do that, you will grow. You understand the difference? Okay, don't beat yourself up over what you think that you aren't. Focus on who Jesus actually is and who he believes that you are and can be. And when you focus on this and keep focusing on that, he will change you. And he's changing you even now, whether you see it or not. But if we leave, then we lose all of that work. Does that make sense? Just because you don't see yourself growing fast enough does not mean that you need to leave. You just need to wait. God who works in you is faithful to complete what he's done until the day of Christ Jesus. He who works in you is faithful, we're told. So Jesus is telling Nicodemus, look, he's like, I just don't understand what you're saying, Jesus. You're telling me I need to be born again, but like, does a grown man go like back inside of his mother? Like, I don't understand what you're saying here. And Jesus tells him, he says, if I be lifted up like Moses did with the serpent in the wilderness, whoever believes on me can have everlasting life. Basically, I have to die and then you have to believe. This is what needs to take place. I have to die, you have to believe, which is the point we were just making earlier. So in order for you to be born of the Spirit, I have to die and you have to believe it. So when the Gospels preach and people believe it, that's what unleashes the Holy Spirit's power in their lives, beloved. That's it. Believe what the Gospel says, that He who began a good work in you is going to finish it, that He's not going to leave you orphans. And we're told this in John chapter 15. John chapter 15, beginning of verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, the word, this can be kind of discouraging. We think that means throw away. But the original language actually says, he lifts up. I hope you're listening to me. Right? So, I am the true vine, my Father is the vine dresser. But every branch of me that does not bear fruit, he lifts up. Right? They had to do this in vineyards. Right? They, keep, they pulled off the ground, they elevate it, they support it. And when that happens, every branch of me that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So even when you go through these painful difficulties of God refining you, it's not that he's upset with you, he's setting you up to bear more fruit. Amen? Amen. He lifts us up, even though we aren't bearing fruit, he lifts us up and he prunes us to empower us to bear more fruit. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Verse 4, abide in me and I in you. This is the secret to success in the Christian life. Keep abiding in Jesus. Keep resting in Jesus. Keep communing with Jesus. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. Your only security, beloved, is staying connected to Jesus. That's your only security in this life. That's it. Staying connected to Jesus. I'm the vine, you're the branches. He who abides in me and I am him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do how much? Nothing. Nothing. But if anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered. And they gather them and throw them into the fire and they're burned. Here's the point. 
Most people today think that abiding in Christ is bearing fruit. So if I'm not bearing fruit, I'm going in the fire. That's not what he's saying here, right? He's going to lift us up if we're not bearing fruit, and he's going to prune us to enable us to bear fruit. When a vine isn't bearing fruit, they elevate it to help it to do so. That's what's being said. But the branches that he casts out, on the other hand, are the ones that don't abide in him. That's the danger. The danger is not whether you're bearing fruit right now or not. The danger is if you're abiding in Jesus. Do you see the difference? If you focus on abiding in Jesus, you will eventually bear fruit. For some of us, he may have to lift us up if we don't see fruit right now. He may have to prune us, but you will bear fruit if you abide in him. The danger is to stop abiding in Jesus. That's the one that gets thrown into the fire. Okay? The point is that he takes responsibility for our fruit bearing. Amen? He's taken responsible for our fruit bearing. We don't need to focus on bearing fruit. We need to focus on abiding in him. And he enables us to bear fruit because he's faithful. That's the truth of the gospel. Now, in Romans chapter 5, Paul makes this very interesting statement, beginning in verse 8. He says, but God demonstrates his own love for us. We talked about this two nights ago. That some of us kind of have this this corrupted picture of God because of the media or bad church experiences or bad experiences with Christians or so forth, or just, you know, that that internal voice of shame and condemnation that we have just because of the devil himself and life and how hard we can be in ourselves, that we somehow kind of envision that Jesus kind of had to come to appease the Father's wrath to convince him to love us. But that's not what Paul's saying here in Romans. Paul says that God demonstrated his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So Jesus didn't try to convince the Father to love us, and that's why he came. It's because the Father already loved us that he sent Jesus. And while we were in a deplorable, broken condition, that means that he sent Jesus before you got anything right. That means that God's love for you is not based upon your performance. It's based upon who He is. I like that a lot better. I don't know about you. If me having a chance of God loving me was based upon my performance, I wouldn't stand a chance. There would be no hope for this world. But God sent Jesus before we got anything right because He knew it would only be if Jesus was living in us that we could do anything right. He understands that, but we don't, which is why we want to talk about that this evening. Okay, verse 9, much more than having now been justified by Jesus' blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now listen to this in verse 10. This is so important. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Now, there are two things going on here regarding the gospel transaction. First of all, what are we reconciled by according to verse 10? We are reconciled by the death of Jesus. That means, remember, the wages of sin is death. What we deserve is death. But because Jesus died in our place, that now clears our debt to death, to the law, which would lead to death, right? So now we've got a clean slate, but here's the problem. I now need to live the rest of my life without sinning in word, thought, or deed, or I'm going to go right back into debt. That's pretty easy, isn't it? No, there's no hope for us. So what I need then is not just someone to clear my past debt. I also need somebody to live a life that I have not lived. Are you with me? And this is why Paul says what he says in the last part of verse 10. He says that we're saved by something else. He doesn't say that we're saved by his death. 
He says we're reconciled by his death. What are we saved by? His life. Beloved, we do not just need the death of Jesus. And I'm not discounting the death of Jesus. We gave an exhaustive discourse of that two nights ago. But I don't just need Jesus' death to have eternal life. I also need the perfect, sinless life of Jesus. We need both. We need the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the full gospel that's laid out in the scriptures. I need someone to die the death that I deserve, and I need someone to live a life that I have not lived nor could live apart from Jesus. And the Holy Spirit makes every bit of that available to me today. He's the one convicting me that I need Jesus, that I haven't believed in Jesus. And he's also the one that makes Jesus' righteous life a reality in my life. Are you understanding? Guys, though, literally, God is doing everything in his power to see you in heaven. He's chasing after people who don't even know him. He's celebrating with people who freshly accepted him. And he's growing them into people who look like Jesus after they accept him. Everything that's needed for us to find holiness and healing and forgiveness in this life is all accounted for in the ministry of the Holy Spirit and in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. It's all there, beloved. Who would say no to that? (laughs) The problem is the world doesn't know this. Many people feel that God has a posture that's against them. They don't realize it is Everything God is doing is making it abundantly clear. He'll do whatever it takes to see you in heaven. But he needs you to respond. Amen? He needs you to respond. That's the point. So if all I had was the death of Jesus, I would have no hope of eternal life. My past debt would be cleared with no hope of living a victorious life going forward. So I'm not going to sugarcoat this. God does desire us to live a life that's going to be free from sin. But that weight's not on you. Your responsibility is to abide in Jesus, and Jesus is the one who ensures that you bear that fruit. Amen? He does intend for us to overcome. If he didn't, why did he send Jesus to suffer and to die on our behalf and to live a life that we haven't lived? That makes no sense. Why would God say, oh, no problem. You're just going to keep messing up until I come, but it'll be okay. No, no. God does want that for you. He does want you to have a life that's free from shame, that's free from condemnation and misery. The difference is the weight's not on you. God is promising to do in, through, and for you what you could never do in your own flesh. For what the law could not do, save us, and it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his son in the, in the likeness of sinful flesh, in a flesh like ours, and on account of sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He overcame sin in the flesh, according to verse 4 of Romans 8, so that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in your life and in mine, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. That's reasonable, beloved. I think that's very reasonable, that whatever God expects of me, God is willing to provide for me. I can roll with that. I don't know about you, I can roll with that. That's the beautiful story of the gospel. He's provided the means necessary for us to overcome by sending Jesus to live a perfect life that we have not lived and by empowering us to live Christ's life through the working of the Spirit in our lives. I want to close with this uh, with a quote here from David Platt. He wrote a book called Radical, Taking Back Your Faith from the American Dream. Beautiful, beautiful quote. It's kind of long, but it's so good, I'm just going to do it, okay? If you then, so he's quoting from Luke 11, if you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And so he starts commenting on this verse now in Luke 11. He's saying that when we pray for the Father's provision, we will find that his provision is good. 
And the more that He provides for us, the more we will trust Him as our Father. But then he quotes Matthew 7. If you then, though, are e- though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask Him? And then he asks a question. Do you notice the difference here? In Luke 11, he says he'll give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him. And Matthew 7, he says he'll give good gifts to those who ask Him. He says, but why does Luke 11 refer to the Father giving the Holy Spirit? To be honest with you, I used to think, what if I wasn't asking for the Holy Spirit? What if I was asking for something else? Why does Jesus say the Father gives the Holy Spirit in response to our prayers? The answer to this question uncovers the beauty of the Spirit of God in our lives. Think about it this way. Maybe you're going through a struggle in your life, and a tragedy strikes you or someone close to you, and you're hurting. So you go to God in prayer, and you ask Him to comfort you. Do you realize what God does? He doesn't give you comfort. Instead, He gives you the Holy Spirit, who's called the Comforter. The Holy Spirit literally comes to dwell in you and puts the very comfort of Christ inside you as you walk through your pain. Suppose another time you're making a big decision in your life and you need help. You have a couple different options before you and you need guidance to decide which way is best. So you ask God for help, but He doesn't give you guidance. Instead, He answers by sending the Holy Spirit, who is the guide. God sends the helper who will live in you and not only tell you what decision to make, but also enable you to make that decision. Yet another time you need discernment and God gives you the spirit of wisdom. At other times you need strength and God gives you the spirit of power. Still other times you ask God for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, and He gives you the spirit who makes all these things a reality in your life. The Holy Spirit is the comforter, the helper, the guide, the very presence of God living in you. This is the promise of God in prayer. We ask God for gifts in prayer, and He gives us the giver. We ask God for supply, and He gives us the source. We ask God for money, and He doesn't give us cash. Instead, so to speak, He gives us the bank. When you really contemplate it, this seems bold, doesn't it? To go to God and say, God, I know you're busy running the universe and keeping all of creation alive, but I had this problem in my life. And God, I don't really want comfort for the moment, and I don't really want guidance for the moment. Would you, would you just come down, live in me, and walk through this for me? Isn't it pushing the envelope to ask the God of the universe to come down and take residence in you and me? And listen to what he says next. What Jesus is saying, though, is that God our Father delights in this. He delights in giving us himself. He puts the very power in, his very power in us so that we might have all we need to accomplish his purposes in this world. Beloved, everything you need, God's not just saying, oh, you need, you need three measures of comfort in your life. Let me count that out. One, two, three, here you go. What God is literally offering is the very wellspring through which comfort is afforded to the entire world. An endless supply of everything you need is available through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You need wisdom? He's got you covered. You need comfort? He's got you covered. You need strength? He's got you covered. There is nothing in the Christian experience that is not accounted for in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and the outpouring of those riches through the Holy Spirit. We're covered, beloved. God wants you in the kingdom. He wants you to live a life that's more abundant. And He's promised to do that through this provision. I want to close with a little story here. 
little illustration. So let's say that on my birthday, this coming September, I tell Chingo, one of my students here towards the back, I tell Chingo that for my birthday, I want a Lightning McQueen bunk bed. You know Lightning McQueen from the movie Cars? Okay, I want a Lightning McQueen bunk bed for my birthday, Chingo. What do I want for my birthday? A Lightning McQueen bunk bed. And I'm serious, Chingo. For my birthday, what I want is a Lightning McQueen bunk bed. Okay? Then a week or two goes by, and I come up to Chingo, and I hand him a check and say, and by the way, here's the money for that bed. And I go on my way. So months go by, September rolls around, and somebody rings my doorbell on my birthday in September. And I open the door, and Chingo's standing there, and behind Chingo is a moving truck. And a moving truck has two brawny guys with the little, you know, support uh, vests and suspenders carrying out a brand new Lightning McQueen bunk bed with a big old red bow on it. And I look at Chingo, and I look at the bed and thought, how did you know? I'm so, Chingo, I, I love you so much. Thank you. Like, how did you even know? This is exactly what I wanted. I'm so thankful. Thank you for giving me just what I wanted. Now, his temptation can be to think, man, this guy's out of his mind. Like, he literally told me what he wanted, like with crystal clear language. He's pretty firm about it. And then he gave me the money to buy the thing. What's he getting all, accepted, all excited about? Well, here's what's so exciting about it. He could have kept the money. What makes me so happy is that Chingo chose to use the gift that I gave him to do what pleases me. This is how God feels by every act of obedience in your life. And some of you can relate to this as parents. When your child opens a door for somebody who's walking across the street and it warms your heart to see them do something like that, yeah, but you told them to do that. In fact, you probably yelled at them for not doing it before that situation happened. So why are you so excited and filled with pride because your child did did what you told them to do and maybe even scolded them for not doing? Because they, of their own volition, chose to do the thing that not only pleased you, but blessed somebody else. This is how God feels when you and I obey, beloved. He delights to see that you would let Him live in your heart and do a work in your life that you couldn't do for yourself because you could have kept that to yourself. But you didn't. This is the beauty of how God works in our lives. He rejoices over our willingness to serve, to give, and to live for Him. Why? Because that means you trust Him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I'll send you the Holy Spirit to make that a reality. When we do the things that please God and bless the world around us, it makes Him so happy. Not because you did deeds to appease an angry God, but because you trusted him enough to let him live in your heart. Because every deed of obedience, just I'm I'm just going to be blatantly honest this evening, not that I've been lying to you until now, but God is not impressed with your obedience. You know why? Because he's the one that did it. (laughs) He loves that you're letting him live in your heart and transform your life and make you into a better person. But he's not impressed by that because he's the true source from whom all blessings and obedience flows. The question is, when you say yes to Jesus, will you let him have all of you, not just part of you? You know, I'll give you my life, but like, I don't really want to touch 
my life life. Like I'll give you my, my willingness and my heart of sorts, but I want my life to remain exactly the same as it was before you came into my life. It doesn't work that way. The question God is asking from us this evening is, would you give him all of you? Would you be willing to trust him with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, and all of your strength? Last study, we gave our lives to Jesus, right? Will you let that Holy Spirit come alongside you and help you live as God's son or daughter? That's the question. And two nights ago, we gave our lives to Jesus. And what we've learned this evening is that God is going to be doing something in your life right now that is beyond your wildest expectations because you trusted in Jesus. And now that you've trusted in Him, you can now know that the Spirit is going to function as the guarantee that you're going to heaven if you keep abiding in Jesus. The Spirit will testify on your behalf that you are a child of God, and the Spirit will be teaching you how to live like a child of God. He'll come alongside you and enable you to live a life that's filled with love, joy, peace, goodness, and self-control. But what we need to be doing now this evening is praying, God, would you make that a reality in my life? I know there's things you're going to want to do in my life, and I'm kind of scared by that because I don't know what this is going to look like. I don't know where we're going together, but if what he's, this guy is saying tonight is true, then I can trust that if I just put my hand in yours, you're going to take me exactly where I would choose to go if I knew what you knew. I believe that the only things that God requires his children to do are the things that they would voluntarily choose to do if they knew what he knew. The only things that God is going to ask of you and the only direction that God is going to lead you is the very place that you would voluntarily choose to go if you knew what he knew. So I want to invite you to join me as we pray and to give him permission to do just that. Lord Jesus, as every head is bowed and every eye is closed, Lord, we're recognizing that you truly are for us and not against us. Father in heaven, we also see that you are for us and not against us. And we want to thank you for the precious gift of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What gives us the assurance that we're not in this Christian journey alone, even if we feel like we're alone on this earth, based upon the decision that we've recently made, you're not leaving us alone. You will comfort us. You will not leave us orphans. And so, Father, we're recognizing that if you would do that much for us, the least we can do is go all in for you. And by simple raising of the hands this evening, if you recognize the Spirit of God is asking you for permission to come into the deepest, darkest depths of your heart and to begin that work of cleansing and transformation and that you want to testify, I'm open to that. I want you to do for me what I cannot do for myself. And though I'm scared and don't know where this is going, I do know that I can trust you. Because if Jesus paid the price we heard about two nights ago, and he's sending the spirit that we've heard about tonight, I have nothing to worry about. I have nothing to fear for my future, because I know what God has done in the past and what he's teaching me right now. So by simple raising of your hands to heaven, if you realize that Jesus is asking for deeper access into your heart, and you want the spirit to do that work, raise your hands this evening. Lord Jesus, you see our hands and you know our hearts. My hand is raised. God, I don't want to stop in my growth. I don't want to plateau in my growth. I need more of you in my life than I have ever needed. And I'm praying that you would do that for my friends here this evening. God bless us. Do in, through, and for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that you would cover our sins with the blood of Jesus, our sins of independence and demanding to do things our way. Lord, may we submit to you and may you have your way in our lives. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord, as much as we can handle. And I pray that you would not just fill us for our sake, 
But I pray that you would transform us for the people around us sake, that they could see that this person truly has encountered Jesus and I want what they have found. This is our plea tonight, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.